Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Doug Peacock on Was It Worth It? First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the animals and nature or science and medicine category for episode number 146 with Douglas Chadwick on Four-Fifths a Grizzly. This is Doug Chadwick, the author of Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. And this is Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Doug Peacock is a Vietnam vet, filmmaker, naturalist, and writer who has been published widely on wilderness issues. His newest book, put out by Patagonia, is titled, Was It Worth It? A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home. Doug, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? The main thing is uh, I wasn't sure I'd have enough time to write another. So I, I, I sort of crammed every last important story that I hadn't published into this book. And this book is very much a, a memoir of climate change. And you know that's the beast of our time. And that's the, what hangs out throughout the entire book. Uh, I picked stories that I hadn't published that uh, you know might have, uh, for instance, I found sign of the last Mexican grizzly in the Sierra Matres in 1985. And that's just an important bit of information. So I put that story in there. And with my buddies, I went over to the uh, Russian Far East to go look for a Siberian tiger. And the tiger we ran into five years later uh, set up an ambush for this guy, a poacher who had wounded him and waited a couple of days at this guy's cabin in the, you know, in the remote uh, Siberian taiga and uh, killed him, dismembered him, ate him. And it, it was such a good story that 10 years later, uh, somebody published a best-selling book called Tiger. And in and, uh, and, um, 2010, which is uh, kind of, late to the game, but I thought I should connect those dots and, and print that story. And you know, I, I, took that, I took that trip with you know, Yvonne Chenard and, and uh, Doug Tompkins and Tom Brokaw, Rick Ridgway and Jeb Ellison. And Doug has subsequently uh, drowned in a kayak accident in Chile. So, you know, had spoke to- with Spoke with Rich, uh, Rick Ridgway about that and also just Mm -hmm. how much he's been around death. And that seems to be a commonality uh, amongst you guys that spend a ton of time in the wilderness and really challenge what humans are capable of in the wilderness. And you said that uh, you tried to get a bunch of these stories in because you don't know how much longer you have. Is that just a result of the the life that you've chosen to live and some of the risks that you're taking in the process? For instance, when you are hunting for that Mexican grizzly, you are literally being awakened by howling coyotes and wolves. Uh, You'd seen jaguar tracks. You have an incredible picture in this book of jaguars as well. I mean, you are constantly surrounded by danger. 
Yeah, and, and that is a it, it, that is also a, just a, a side product of of accidentally living a really rich life, and I'm happy for every one of those encounters. You know, those wild animals, especially the dangerous one, have really enriched my life in so many ways. That jaguar down in the Sierra Madres backtracked me 14 miles. You know, and uh, uh, and he came around the campfire one night and we could hear him. I was with a buddy down there, but uh, you know, it was, it was like a mystery animal. I could smell him, I could hear him, but I never saw him. So was that picture that you took that is in there from about three feet away from this Jaguar? Yeah, but was that's that, that Elvis picture. Okay. Uh, Patagonia found that picture for me. I got gotcha. you. You know, and uh, that's a tough animal to see. That's really a great one. <laughs> How was the most indispensable wilderness experience of your life? How did it happen by accident in Yellowstone National Park in the decade after you got back from Vietnam? <clears throat> well, um, after Vietnam, I came back in the spring of 68, and I just, I couldn't be around like many, many other veterans. I didn't want, I couldn't be around anybody, you know? And uh, so I went to the one place that I was comfortable and that's the American wilderness, especially the Rocky Mountains. And I was up in the Wind Rivers uh, waiting for the snows to melt. And uh, the east side of the Wind Rivers is a place where the snows linger all summer long. And I came down with a, a malaria attack, you know, paroxysm as we call them. And, you know, I'd had, several in Vietnam. So I knew what was coming. And so I got the hell out of the Wind River, which is a wild, cold, wet, wonderful place. Very, and, and I headed towards Yellowstone and, uh, you know, I uh, got to Yellowstone where the topography was relatively flat in comparison to Wind Rivers and weather was better. And I went into this thermal area where I, uh, you know, I, I knew it from earlier trips and I was just planning on, you know, embracing that old notion of soaking in hot water and spa and healing from the malaria attack. So I say accidentally because I kept a notebook and the last entry I made, I had a thermometer and my temperature went up to 105.6. And, uh, you know, I knew it was coming and that, that's the last entry. I don't know if I was there sweating in my sleeping bag for three hours or three days. It's just, okay. so, you know, and I was aware of bear tracks all around the place. And I was just loony enough in my mind from the fever that uh, I wasn't sure if they're real bears or not. <laughs> and it turned out they were, you know. <laughs> Well, speaking of bears, you are admittedly drawn to grizzlies. You've done plenty of things to help sustain the grizzly population throughout your life. What do you find so appealing by this magnificent creature? Well, it's the one animal we have on this continent who reminds the most arrogant species of life on earth, which happens to be homo sapiens of our place in wilderness and nature in the wild. And, you know, you're, you're not the top of the food uh, pyramid when you go into grizzly country and you got to pay attention. 
you know, you, you, you see outward because there's something, something out there that's bigger than you and if it chooses to, it could kill and eat you. And uh, I've always found that a, a, a healthy mental state, you know, the external point of view. And this is sort of an enforced humility to live with grizzly bears. And, uh, you know, no, no, no year of my life since I came back from Vietnam has gone without me going to see a grizzly bear. It's, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's really the central story, annual story of every uh, year I tell of my life. It's, you know, going to see the grizzly. And, uh, you know, so I've been doing what I can to keep them around, protect them, fight for them, film them, you know, for over 50 years now. And, uh, you know, they're, they're worth it all. And occasionally you find, find yourself in situations with grizzlies that could become dangerous, but you understand how to act in those situations. For somebody who's listening right now, who hopefully never encounters this hypothetical I'm about to ask you about, but if somebody does find themselves in a situation with a potentially aggressive grizzly bear, what is the best way to behave and to basically get yourself out of that situation? Now, that's a good question. Um, aggression in grizzly bears is uh, is very limited. You know, the only aggressive grizzly that uh, I have uh, run into in my life were were uh, dominant males in the spring defending a carcass, like the a carcass of a buffalo or a, a moose or, or or an elk. And that's still pretty rare. It's only happens about 25% of the time, almost always in the spring. And it's just because it's, you know, it's life or death to the bear. The, the, the most dangerous situation by far is running into a mother with cubs because she will do anything she needs to, to take care of those cubs. And all you have to do to come out on the rosy uh, side of uh, that equation is uh, not be a threat to her cubs. So what I do is nothing. You know, if, if a mother grizzly is, uh, uh, the last, one of the last ones I ran into, not the last one, but uh, I ran into one with my daughter in Yellowstone. And we were, we were up there on a windy day in the spring, it was early June. And uh, my daughter and I are up on this mesa with these big boulders, they're glacial erratics, but we're huddled behind one of the glacial erratics just to get out of the wind. The wind was just roaring. And all of a sudden, you know, I've got my daughter kind of tucked, tucked in there and I can, I, I, her expression changes. So I look over there and there's a mother grizzly and her yearling cub walking right towards us on this, you know, little tiny, it's a butte, so it's not a huge area on top. And we all see each other at the same time and the grizzly bear rears and stands up and, and you know, sniffs around. They rear when they wanna see or smell better. You know, that's not a threat whatsoever. But the only thing I said to my daughter is don't move. <laughs> and, uh, um, and we didn't, and after, oh, four or five minutes, the bear settled down and they came over this rise right towards us. And they were, you know, when they walked past us, um, they were only like 20 feet away. It's, you know, it, it, uh, but we did not move a muscle. And the grizzly bear, the mother 
took her, her, her one and a half year old cub to the edge of this cliff because we're up on a, you know, on a edge of the steep butte and, you know, it's a cliff there. And uh, again, she's only 15 or 20 feet away when she does it. She proceeds to nurse her cub. You can hear this rhythmic puttering sound that bears make when they nurse her young hmm. on the, you know, within 20 feet of us for seven or eight minutes. So that is, you know, that window of trust was opened by being really receptive. And, you know, uh, the fact is, we know that happens quite a bit up in Canada and Alaska, where you got sand, salmon streams. I've had mother grizzlies leave their cubs with me, go get a salmon and come back. And, you know, the, the, the cubs are sitting right next to you on the riverbank and, you know, get her cubs and just go on. But, it, you know, it, you'd never see that kind of behavior in Glacier or Yellowstone, unless you kind of go out of your way and open that window of trust. So in this case, Mother Grizzly. I don't have any fear of Mother Grizzlies because I know they only care about the safety of their, their young. And, uh, you know, but uh, people get mauled because they try to run or they try to climb trees and you can't do any of that with a Mother Grizzly, you know. You don't want to move fast. You don't want to scream at them. You, you just need to be calm. And uh, I usually look off to the side because uh, grizzly, grizzlies, the uh, frontal orientation is is a is a challenge of grizzly bear. You know that's a, and so I look off to the side and I talk but not very loud. Hmm. And uh, you know I've had like three dozen close calls like that, and so far so good. You, know? <laughs> you are a self-admitted insomniac. Why do you find sleeping in the desert to be so soothing? Well, I'm down in the desert now. And uh, the area to my west is, uh, you know, you can go almost 200 miles out there and not cross a road. It's really, and I have walked across it by myself, solo, uh, carrying my own water seven times in the end. It takes me about 10 days. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm used to that, but uh, uh, I wrote a, a little chapter ostensibly on bighorn sheep, but it's kind of tongue in cheek. You know, I say, I go into the desert to get a good night's sleep because insomnia has been the central dysfunction of my adult life. And, but I walk out there, you know, I walk sometimes 20 miles a day carrying a really heavy pack. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you're ready for a good night's sleep. And I kindle a little fire and, and, uh, and you know, and it's, uh, it's a magical thing. You know, Ed, Abby and I traveled together out there a lot. And for the first four or five years, we, you know, uh, we just took our pickup trucks, you know, because uh, that was, you're supposed to, it's supposed to be a, a, just a rugged Jeep voyage across this desert, but, Towards the end of Ed's life, we both, uh, you know, truck camping just was a little tame. And, you know, I wanted to have a real adventure. So we started walking out there. And it, it ends up, that was, you know, the greatest currency Ed Abbey and I shared. And we were close enough friends that I buried him out there. You know, I was with him when he died, found a good place with three friends to stick him in the ground. And, uh, 
that was the greatest, uh, those walks were the greatest currency we ever shared. You know, it's just a, it's a magical place. It's full of reverence and everything happens so slow, even though you're walking, you know, 160 or 70 miles, it just, uh, you, you, you've got time for the entire world and you watch the plants and the flowers emerging in the spring. And it's full of animals, not necessarily big animals, but there's deer and, and bighorn sheep and uh, pronghorn antelope out there, along with, you know, coyotes and uh, mountain lions and lots of smaller animals. And it's a great place for birds. And it's just, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I'm gonna go out there as soon as I uh, sort of hang up on you, I'm gonna go out there with my dogs tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and then just savor the desert, you know, because it's just a, uh, I live in Montana most of the time where the grizzly bears are, but I really have two polar mistresses in my life. And one is grizzly country in Northern Rockies. I live about 30 miles north of Yellowstone. And the other one's down here, you know, down here in the desert. And when the grizzly bears hibernate, I hightail it south. Hmm. I'm about... 40 miles from the Mexican border right now. Gotcha. You were north of the American border in 1991 when you were stalking polar bears. How is the strategy of stalking polar bears different from that of grizzlies? Well, it turned out not to be that much difference. Uh, we were up there. I was with Doug Tompkins and Rick Ridgway again, you know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's my polar bear spear on the cover of the latest book. Um, but uh, in, the, in the summertime, we just, we, we ran into many uh, family groups, you know, mothers with young, and they, they were just like grizzly bears, you know, the same, they were wary of human beings being around their cubs. And, and I didn't, uh, you know, it was a very benign exchange. Now, polar bears, uh, if you're around them year round, they're a different kind of animal. They're actually genetically very close to a grizzly bear. You know, the, a polar bear uh, was basically a Russian grizzly bear, uh, that a brown bear that wandered north onto the ice and started hunting seals. And the end product of that evolution, it takes a couple hundred thousand years to complete it, is this polar bear that looks different, different colors. It's, but on the other hand, they breed with one another and their offsprings are uh, reproductive. So, you know, they're very close. And, that was uh, shocking to find out about. And I'm guessing that it creates a uh, sort of mixed color between the, the brown of the grizzly. Yeah, and the white it does. I've, I've only seen pictures of them, but they, you know, they, they, uh, of course, uh, hunters are big on that. They want to bag a, whatever they, the hybrid's name is. But you know, right now with climate change, nothing is warming faster than the Arctic. Uh, the sea ice is basically gone. You know, and by September of every year, the uh, Arctic sea ice has melted far beyond the, the continental shelf, and that's where all the polar bear food is. Many, you know, ring seals—they—they they live on uh, marine mammals largely, and now. Polar bears are moving inland. They're feeding on snow geese during their fledgling period when they can't fly. And, you know, they're eating grass. Polar and, and grizzly bears at the same time 
some of them are moving north because of the same problem, you know, because the, the droughts and the fires, the boreal fires are crazy. So you've got, you know, these, these two ostensibly different looking animals running into one another and, uh, you know, they, they mate and they, the offspring are, re, you know, are reproductive. So we've got another uh, hybrid of a, of a, a bear coming along out there. And, you know, they, if any of us last long enough on this warming planet, you would see that the polar bear would quite possibly fold its genes back into the brown bear. It's a recessive gene and it pops out, it's popped out a couple of times in geologic history. And, uh, you know, it, you wouldn't see any polar bears in the flesh, but uh, genetically they'd be out there and you'd find them inside a grizzly bear that does that uh, transition to a marine, you know, to a marine diet again. So, uh, Speaking of a polar bear's diet, uh, how do polar bear attacks typically play out? Oh, okay. Yeah, I kind of strayed from that one. In the wintertime when I... I have been up there, but I hadn't run in polar bears. But in the wintertime, um, polar bears, there, there is a really scary predation pattern of polar bears on people. And, uh, and th they come and kill people pretty much like they kill ring seals, which is their primary food. You know, they, they wait in a hole until, you know, the seal pops up and they bite them on the head. Well, in the wintertime, you know, pods of displaced workers, mainly on oil rigs, you know, come out of the outhouse or wherever they come out in the dark of the, you know, the, the winter night is, you know, it's 24 seven up there. And, uh, and, and there's a polar bear waiting for them, you know, and sometimes it's displaced pods of uh, scientists camping on the ice and somebody comes out of a tent and blammo, you know, the, and the, the, the pattern of predation is almost always a younger male polar bear. So it's like a three or four year old uh, and their behavior is not quite set as much then. That's about the only reason that the young bears are, are experimenting with food sources. And it's, it's, it's pretty terrifying stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would be, you know, I'd be a little uncomfortable in the wintertime in polar bear country. No question. Now, <laughs> you are a, a gun lover who hates the NRA. Why? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, I, you know I, I, I wrote a chapter in this book that I wrote for, oh, probably published in Daily Beast or someplace. But, you know, I don't trophy hunt. I wouldn't, I wouldn't kill a bear or a wolf or a predator for a cool million at least and uh um you know there's just uh and and i gave up on the nra you know they they were uh, back ed abby was had an nra sticker and he gave me one i never put it on my truck because you know they've just evolved into a whole agenda that's uh, basically a right-wing agenda and uh, uh you know, uh, none of which I can embrace. And I, uh, I, I, I do have plenty of guns. I, I, people give 
happened to me. I don't know why, but they give me a lot. I got some really good ones. Uh, and, uh, you know, in my life, I, I hunt many birds and occasional deer. Um, but I am, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of the NRA has, has uh, joined up with the Safari Club International. And they are the enemy of wildlife. You know, they were the ones that wanted the grizzly bear uh, taken off the Endangered Species Act. You know, and that's when I formed this last organization called Save the Yellowstone Grizzly is back in 2016. You know, they wanted to trophy hunt Yellowstone's grizzlies. And, uh, you know, and I, I fought them with all my friends and we, we won in federal court. And the bear is back on the endangered species list now. But those guys have been no help, you know, and they just want more guns, more lead. Lead, lead bullets are poisoning the condors. You know, that's a source of great mortality for California condors. And, you know, they won't back off. They won't grant. They just want, you know, more lead, more bullets, bigger magazines. And that's, that's, that's crazy. You know, I, I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not their friend. And, you know. I think it makes a lot of sense as to why. Now, Doug, you wrote about an experience on the Galapagos Islands, which mm -hmm. were obviously made famous by Charles Darwin nearly 200 years ago. What impressed you most about this place? In just the species and the uh, natural selection, Darwinism, evolution, it's it's so palpable down there. All you got to do is open your eyes and ears, and it's in all the birds. You know, the birds have been isolated on these islands with no predators. That's the main thing. Is uh, the highest predator down there is a, the Galapagos hawk, and uh, and there's all of these wonderful land tortoises. And historically, human beings have you know killed them and eaten them you know, pirates and all kinds of whalers <laughs> used to stop there and load up their boats with land tortoises, these tame animals. It, uh, and, uh, but they survived in a world without predation, without predators, without natural enemies. And, you know, their options for survival are just, are so different than we humans and other animals that are continually being hunted either by each other or, you know, or, or a similar predator. But down there, it's, uh, you know, you see other possibilities. You wonder what it's like to, you know, to have evolved without danger. You know, it's a, it's a, a tamer, kinder sort of world and evolution and a world that's just free of most of the threats that uh, you and I would encounter in our just in our daily lives last question doug considering the title of the book is was it worth it was it oh yeah the last couple pages of the uh book give every magical experience i've had with animals and wildness and you know the last one is watching a a bunch of grizzlies down in a little basin surrounding a little lake. I mean, the lake is only 10 feet across and there were 
there were four adult grizzlies, four cubs, two yearlings, and they're all swaying around this. And I said, you know, science doesn't prepare you for that sort of thing. The bears were dancing. <laughs> and, I, and then I said, it was worth it. <laughs> Love that. Doug Peacock is a Vietnam vet, filmmaker, naturalist, and writer who has been published widely on wilderness issues. His newest book, put out by Patagonia, is titled Was It Worth It? A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home. Doug, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Well, thank you, Trey. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.